All right, now we're recording. Please ask your question. Yes. Uh, do you guys remember when this movie came out? Were you guys around enough? I mean, you were alive in 91. I do not remember when yeah, this I movie came out. I was just a, a baby at that point. That's why I was... That's like growing up in LA in the early 90s when this movie came out. And that whole era of the early 90s in Los Angeles. Like when you started talking about movies in the 90s. And how they impacted you or the culture that you were, you know, or the further culture in America. Like, I, I, it all just came running back. All of the things that happened in Los Angeles in the early 90s. And this movie was the earliest experience that I could remember. Did you see it in theaters? I didn't see it in the theaters because I, um, I hadn't branched out in my life at that point yet. I, I grew up like super religious, homeschooled, very conservative. But I very clearly remember the opening night, how big it was, and how that made national news because all of these young black people were going to movies. And it was like in that era of the um, parental guidance suggested mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And it's just, it's just young black people going to see a movie, like all of them, over one weekend. And people were freaking out is kind of how I remember this movie coming into theaters. Like, don't go to the movies this weekend. It's so easy to point to sort of like to media as causal, but it's very specific media, right? Like the news will cover violence in black neighborhoods, but do it in a really specific exacting way. And so when a a black man decides, I am going to use the narratives that you use, in, in popular media, and I'm going to actually utilize them to illuminate what's happening in these neighborhoods instead of weaponizing them, then of course, like dominant media apparatus gets upset and they have to refocus the story on something else to take back control. That's I watched it again this morning, and that's one of the things that I noticed. Like it so so bluntly showed that part of that life. And it didn't shy away from it. It didn't shy away from the problems that clearly exist. But it also showed the humanization of even the most violent characters, like even the ones, the the guys that kill Ricky at the end. It Mm -hmm. showed them for a brief moment and humanized them having a burger before they were shot and killed, you know? Yep. Yeah. We're sorry, we're getting very into oh, it. We're getting into it. <laughs> I got too excited. We we do that sometimes. I about- did too. I started it. I started it. <laughs> My fault. Welcome back, everyone. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And you've already heard a little bit from him, but our guest today is an actor that you certainly know from some films of the decade we cover, such as Empire Records and Can't Hardly Wait, as well as more recent work like The Devil's Candy, Blind Spotting, and Netflix's Grace and Frankie. Ethan Embry is here today, gracing us with his presence. Ethan, thank you so much for being on the show. 
Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. And thanks for getting me to watch Boys in the Hood again. It's been too many years. Thanks for getting us to watch Boys in the Hood again. It's been too many years. <laughs> it was, I will admit up front here, Ethan, this is the very first time that I have seen Boys in the Hood. Really? Really? What do yes. you think? When did you watch it? Uh, we watched it last night. Okay. And uh, I, I adored it. I have seen a, a couple of other uh, of John Singleton's works before. My my favorite of those uh, previously had been Rosewood. Have you seen Rosewood? I have not seen Rosewood. Oh, great movie. That was the other one that I was trying to remember. Uh, there's one more, but Rosewood was the one I haven't seen. Rosewood is fantastic. It's uh, it's like a, a black western. It takes place kind of in like the late uh, 19th, early 20th century in uh, a black community in Florida. Sort of like a, like a Tulsa kind of place where there's like black enterprise and business that's adjacent to a, a white community and the tension that erupts there. Awesome Ving Rhames performance. He's like fully suede out in like cowboy gear with the hat and the, sh- the six shooters. Very cool. But that's a different movie. Boys in the Hood, I thought, was just fantastic and features so many of my favorite actors really doing some of their earliest work. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne here, you know, so looking good. great, doing incredible work. Angela Bassett in one of her like first big prominent roles. Yep. Regina King. Yep. Regina King. Cuba. Yep. It was his first major role. Cuba's right. Yeah. He did this film in, in shot in 1990, came out in 91. And, you know, five years later, he's an Oscar nominated person, Cuba Gooding Jr. for uh, Jerry Maguire. So, I mean, yep. he was always... I think going to be a star and, and yeah, just fantastic work from all those folks. As you've already kind of mentioned, there's just, there's so much to mine here in terms of its text, it's not even subtext. It's, it's so blunt. It's so apparent. Yep. It's John Singleton writing about his experiences in South Central Los Angeles, talking about what he's seen, what his friends have seen, telling stories that are unique and different from so much of what Hollywood was doing. And it's one of those films that, in the in the wake of every new atrocity committed by police, every every violent racist act committed against uh, you know a defenseless and, and unarmed black person, this one comes up again, and it seems like we have to keep repeating the same lessons and talking about the same films and stories that have already dissected and examined this from a particular vantage point. One of the things that struck me when I was watching it this morning was John making the villain cop of the story a black officer. And Mm -hmm. when you take what happened with Tyree just recently and that interaction that Lawrence has with him on the steps after being robbed, you know, and he says, you got a problem? I do. And, uh, he asks the cop if the cop knows what the problem is and the cop doesn't. And he says, well, that's the problem essentially because Mm -hmm. you were just degrading and dehumanizing us just, yeah, really interesting that to, to take that, that villain cop and make it a black man, you know? So it's not just a race thing. It's an entire, uh, it's a system. Yes. I would never say that this is the first film that addresses all of these issues that we're talking about, that the film talks about, but it is the first one in my life that I saw, you know? So those things that Lawrence was talking about, it was like my introduction to what woke is, you know, like a, a black man saying, this is what, this is how it is. And yes, those characters have existed through stories and music, and, and but it's the first one in my life that I noticed. And that's one of the first, that one line where he talks about, 
there being a liquor store and a gun store on every corner. Mm-hmm. It was the first time when I watched this when I was like 14 years old. It was the first time I heard that, you know? It's like, oh, that's why it's like that. All of these different, like, multifaceted vestiges of white supremacy and the capitalist order kind of, you know, uh, concretizing and demeaning and dehumanizing black Americans. It's, it's all here. So simply put, and he does it without any white people. He does it, you know, he, he just shows like, this is, this is how it's affected us. Like there's no white villain in it. You know, you bring up what this movie was for you when you first saw it. And I have to ask you, what was it like rewatching it? So recently, at the beginning, I talked about my upbringing, grew up really conservative, um, homeschooled. I lived in rough neighborhoods within Los Angeles, um, predominantly Hispanic neighborhoods, uh, and recently moved to Atlanta five years ago. And in my move to Atlanta, I'll just be completely blunt and wide open, um, I realized how racist I had been brought up because I'm in a predominantly black neighborhood. It's a mix of middle class and lower income. And for a while, I'd go to the grocery store and I would be uncomfortable. And I'm like, why am I uncomfortable? Oh, you're the only white guy in here. Yeah. Like, that's how my parents raised me. That's how the culture around me raised me. And so watching Boys in the Hood again today, the thing that stood out the most to me was the way that it humanized those characters, you know, the ones that, even the ones that are, uh, uh, what's the word, like more extreme, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, they're more aggressive in character, still fully humanized them. You know, you know, one of the things I've been, it's just a different taste in art, really. Like I grew up listening to heavy metal, fucking Sepultura, and I loved burning (laughs) shit and I looked like a punk rocker, you know, but that's, that's no, it's just a different type of cultural influence and Mm -hmm. watching it today, the, the humanization of the characters and then also the way John shot, cut, and did the sound design. Like yes. when Ricky, I'd never caught this before, but when Ricky gets shot, they're nowhere near his house, but he put his baby crying over. So the sound, like it's one of the loudest pieces of audio is his yeah. child crying. It's like, oh. That sound collaging is so effective in different parts of this movie. In the opening kind of segment when uh there's the the man who breaks in to furious's house there's that dripping of the faucet that's yeah. playing really loudly to create that kind of rhythmic quality and near the end as well when cuba's in the car with cube and uh, trey and and doughboy are, are driving off to kind of get vengeance on yeah. these guys who killed who killed ricky it's just furious's lawrence fishburne's metal balls in his hand right kind yeah of, yeah yeah grazing one another and grinding and you can just hear that as this sort of like ambient sound driving that tension and that kind of contemplative quality going on in Cuba it's it's so good because that's what he's thinking about he's sitting in that car thinking about his dad's lessons yes 
You know, that's the one, that's the reason he says, get, let me out of the car because of everything mm-hmm. his dad taught him. Yeah. The sound design is like brilliant, not just because of how like expertly he employs some of these pieces that kind of penetrate the the realism of the film, which is, I mean, this film really does go for realism over sort of dramatic flourish every chance that it gets, which I love. But he does have this kind of like surrealist element to the sound design where like there are things that feel like they're in maybe the diegesis of the film, like like a radio playing. But then also you're like, oh, is this the soundtrack? Like, is he scoring this moment? A saxophone, like a sexy yes, late yeah. 80s a sexy saxophone. saxophone. <laughs> and you're like, where is this coming from? But it really adds to this like sense that this is a place that is full of noise um, and that these, these boys lives are full of noise um, that there's so much like surrounding them and, and coming at them and there's so much going on inside of them. And I, I love that the sound design does that. And also that the movie itself is just gorgeous to look at. I mean, he fills every frame with stuff um, and it feels you know, totally naturalistic, but also just feels like beautifully architected. There's such an intentionality to everything he's putting in front of us. And the women's lives too, bringing up their noise, you know, that's one of the things today watching it that I, that didn't stick with me before, but today the women characters that are, are there with them, the girlfriends, the mothers, they're so so well-rounded and also surrounded by that noise, you know? In South Central LA, Yo, Benita, let's do the local thing. It's tough to beat the streets. What am I supposed to do? Fool roll up, try to smoke me? I'm gonna shoot the motherfucker. You have to think, young brother, about your future. Now why are you sweating? You're my only son, and I'm not going to lose you to no bull. Hey, don't worry about it. I can take care of myself. Trey wanted to work his way up. Trey is a grown man now. He is not a little boy anymore. Heard you like Mr. GQ smooth now. Maybe some of what you got to rub off on it. Ricky was looking for a better life. I want to do something with my life, right? I want to be somebody. When you were a little boy, you used to run around here all the time with that football in your hand. I always knew you would amount to something. Doughboy was living by the laws of the street. Fuck you looking at, nigga? We got a problem here? We got a problem, nigga? Can we have one night where there ain't no fight, nobody gets shot? It's hard to be a saint in South Central L.A. I don't understand why you insist on learning things the hard way, Trey, but you're going to learn. How to survive in South Central with number one.
I love that John Singleton in this film does not ever give us the opportunity to put anyone like in a box of like certain stereotypes being checked off. Like he works really hard to counter all of kind of like the mainstream narratives of like welfare queens and like, you know, absent fathers. Like we see at every turn that, um, Lawrence Fishburne's character being named Furious is like kind of John Singleton being like, yeah, fuck you. Like he's actually uh, a, a father who is there for his son. He has a reason to be angry if he is ever angry. Um, and and he's he is teaching him lessons he needs to learn. And same with um, Ricky and Doughboy's mother. I think it would be really easy for another movie to portray her as just like, uh, a crackhead mom who like doesn't give a shit about her kids and who's like abusive and she's not perfect but the movie does not let us write her off the movie is insistent on the fact that like she's doing the best that she can and she's also hard on doughboy for a reason right. even if like it might not be you know like the best thing for him it's well-intentioned and she and is she may be responsible for some of that stuff yes mm-hmm. which is something that i think is contrasted with furious like very purposefully that like doughboy doesn't have a parent telling him you're better than this he has a parent telling him this is you this is your fault mm-hmm. right yeah you mentioned ethan that you know singleton goes out of his way to humanize these particular characters like like the Doughboys and uh, even the the kind of gang members who who kill Ricky. And I, I would say like th- they humanize them maybe even more so than some of the, the characters like Trey or uh, or Ricky in this film. Like it's very intentional. John Singleton uh, tells a story, an anecdote in a uh, verbal history that I was reading of this movie that on the, the evening of the premiere, the opening weekend, he and a couple of producers and some cast members drove around South Central in a limo going to different theaters and and stopped by the one that he kind of was raised in and, and grew to love movies in. And after the screening, uh, a woman came up with, you know, this kind of big kind of rough looking guy that John Singleton says it was clear that, you know, he had he had done time before and she did all the talking because his eyes were like beat red and he was just like staring at the at the ceiling and this woman you know her the the partner of this guy said to singleton i loved it he really loved it the entire movie he was telling me this is my story i'm watching my story for the very first time and i think that's such a cool anecdote that like uh these characters who are are usually done as such one-dimensional kind of you know, ciphers in these movies, oftentimes in, in really reactionary kind of stories, you know, like think about this in comparison to like a death wish or something and the way that that gang members and criminality is portrayed. Uh, it's so nuanced and it's it's really lovely to to just see the way that he handles that with with such a deft hand, which is it brings like that that story makes me think of like, you know, my industry, the entertainment particularly film and TV industry is rightfully so 
making it an attempt these days to be more inclusive with the characters and the stories that they tell. Um, I feel the best approach to accurately do that and have the most impact with the culture is to have storytellers themselves, producers, directors, to the point of we're going to need execs within the studios that also represent that culture, you know, because you can't, Mm -hmm. you can't tell that story if you don't know it, you can't accurately, you can't touch that man the way John did, unless you are very familiar with that experience. And, you know, that's a large chunk of our population, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I, you know, like before Boys in the Hood, we had the, there was obviously like black exploitation, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing one, but this to, in, in, in my knowledge was the first truly mainstream wide success story from Hollywood that told that experience. The other one that comes up is, um, do the right thing, which was. 89 89 yeah i was actually going to say you know this movie is i think in part that the success of it was driven by columbia pictures wanting to capitalize on the success that they saw with something like do the right thing but even that film saw a much i think smaller release and and way smaller figures than this film did in terms of its success but spike certainly you know had a hand i think in paving the way for someone like singleton to come along as another like film school educated young black director making this story. And when you're talking, Ethan, about like representation within sort of like the C-suite and the executive side of this, the, the, the producers within Hollywood as well, um, who, who have backgrounds in, in this kind of experience, there is an interesting story with this film that, you know, Singleton brought the script to a, a script reader at the time who was working at Columbia named Stephanie Elaine, I think is her name, Stephanie Elaine, um, who is a, a woman of color. And I think that their connection and her willingness to read that script and, and something about it that resonated with her was a huge reason that that got off the ground in the first place. Because you had those like those, you know, big figures of the 90s and the aughts and they're like, um, uh, Amy Pascal was was someone you know who was later at Sony, a big part of like the Sony email leaks and things like that. Who was at the head of Columbia at the time, and uh, without I think that other voice in the room who was part of the studio saying like yeah. I trust this guy, I believe in this guy. Um, I, I'm not sure that it would have ever found purchase, and, and we may be without a Boys in the Hood. And look at what it to me anyway. It seems that this is what kicked off my exposure to the large the arts surrounding the culture more hip-hop and and rap and it happened right around the time that west coast rap was really just starting to explode and and again maybe i'm giving it more credit but it's in my experience it seems like this is what started the mainstream and by that i mean like the larger white culture's attention towards their music their films their creative stories yeah i think you're totally right and i think like it's always interesting to try to unpack the difference between, you know, dominant popular culture, white culture consuming like black art for entertainment um, and profiting off of it versus like 
utilizing it and respecting it and honoring it. And I think oftentimes it is, of course, the former. Um, and which is why what you're talking about, about, you know, sort of like having more people like Singleton and like Elaine in these institutions of power uh, to avoid that exploitation. And I'm so glad you're bringing up like how, how big this movie was, because I think it's really important to talk about that in conjunction with the response that like popular media had to the movie, like being as big as it was, because that was eventually overshadowed by the mainstream media's attempt to center the violence that was taking up that was taking place not just within the film but at theaters where the film was being showed and then when i was reading the reviews and the contemporary news pieces written about this film and how much of them were focused on the violence happening in the film and also at the theaters i was like yeah this is this is the only way mainstream media knows and wants to talk about this stuff yeah. it it is not allowing for john singleton and the message he's crying trying to deliver which is explicit increase the peace it's not about like yeah. inciting violence they have to posit it as a, a piece of art that incites and, violence yeah, yes yeah. a provocation and it's not even that violent it, the film is not purposefully so it's not really violent at all. Like that end scene is 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 heartbreaking and it hits you so hard when when he's brought home to his family, you know, on the plastic couch and the baby screaming and you know, the mother blames Doe and it's like it rips you apart and John put him in a white shirt so the blood really pops, you know. And then there's that shot of Cuba standing there watching everything with his blood still on him. And it tears you apart. But that's not violent, not even for the time. Like, you know, we had RoboCop already, right? When did RoboCop yeah. come out? Like, that Ro shit's violent. Yeah. <laughs> RoboCop and Ter Terminator 2 T2 came out. <laughs> came out the same weekend as this one. Did it? Was it the same weekend? I think it was the weekend right before this one. But okay. that one and they then were Point in the Break theaters was, together. was this one. Yeah, so. Got it. Yeah, Point Break was more violent than this. Yes. And that's like the thing, right? It's like, especially, I was thinking particularly about T2, because James Cameron also kind of has an anti-police message in, in his film. T-1000 is a police officer who can literally move through bars and kill people. Like, he's pretty explicit in his message of, like, the police are, are extrajudicial and, like, incredibly violent. And that film fetishizes violence in a way that I think people painted boys in the hood doing so, right, but right. boys in the hood did not. And so then you have this, you have these, these two films that are talking about not just the same message, but, you know, really pointing the finger at police in a lot of ways. And, and yet no one is talking about the violence in T2. No one is talking right. about that movie inciting gunshots or riots or anything like that. Because it's the, it, if you've lived and grown up in America, you're taught at a very young age that your reflex around young black men in particular is violence, you know, so that we, you watch a, an hour and a half long movie that has one sequence of violence, 
but it's all young black men. Like your reflex is going to be, that's a violent movie. These reviewers that you're talking about, it was probably one of the very few films they'd ever seen that centered around young black American boys, men. So yeah, the reflex was, uh, that's pretty violent. I really do hate the term, what it means now. I hate that wokeism has grown to be every other liberal cause, every other progressive cause. Mm-hmm. Right, you right. Yeah, it's, it's meaningless now. It's completely bastardized. It, and it's, that's like, I only used it earlier when talking about Lawrence's character because the origination of the term comes from when a black American realizes what their existence actually is, mm-hmm. you know? Like the white side of it would be, oh, wow, our system's really fucked. Like, but people weren't talking about it back then. They weren't, it wasn't in the dialogue. Um, stretching the story a little, the timeline in Los Angeles, if you go to the Rodney King, the, a year later, the riots, you know, the cultural response to a community being outraged that seven police officers were allowed to beat a man nearly to death and get away with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the response to how they, um, how they responded um, is so different than the way we talk about things now, the way you and I talk about things now there, that response still exists. Yeah. Yes. Um, it is less acceptable now, mm-hmm. you know, but the yeah. idea to respond the way that we are trying to learn how to today wasn't even on the table back then. In fact, it was like explicitly called out in some of these contemporary reviews where a lot of the critics were like, if, uh, you know, black audiences see uh, a young black man like standing up to police or like taking revenge, like they will then go do that thing. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, like, these people have a right to be mad about the shit that's going on, but it it is crazy how it is explicit. It's like, no, we don't want them getting the idea that they should be upset about what's happening it's and so that they should like, oh, it's so page. There's so much infantilization around it, but you bring up another really good point, Ethan, that I want to make sure we touch on, which is that like, it is the job of mainstream media, which is an apparatus of state control to enforce the narrative that these people are in the position they are in because of their doing not what john singleton is showing us very clearly in the film which is that the police housing uh laws um uh access to education uh any sort of like economic stability um the army all of these all of these pillars of our society are working against these people to keep them in the position that they're in so i i look at the response of things that came out in the wake of this film and it makes perfect sense that they are parroting these themes that they are parroting yeah. they don't want people to recognize the things that singleton is showing us very clearly Why y'all take a look at that sign up there? See what it says? Cash for your home? You know what that is? It's Bill Billboard. What are y'all, Amos and Andy? Are you stepping and he's fetching? I'm talking about the message, what it stands for. 
It's called gentrification. It's what happens when the property value of a certain area is brought down. Huh? You listening? Yeah. They bring the property value down. They can buy the land at a lower price. Then they move all the people out, raise the property value, and sell it at a profit. Now, what we need to do is we need to keep everything in our neighborhood, everything black. Black owned with black money. Just like the Jews, the Italians, the Mexicans, and the Koreans do. Ain't nobody from outside bringing down the property value. It's these folks shooting each other and selling that crack rock and shit. Well, how you think the crack rock gets into the country? We don't own any planes. We don't own no ships. But we are not the people who are flying and floating that shit in here. I know every time you turn on the TV, that's what you see, black oh, yeah. people yeah. selling the rock, right. pushing the rock, yeah. pushing the rock. Yeah, I know. But that wasn't a problem as long as it was here. Wasn't a problem until it was in Iowa, and it showed up on Wall Street where there are hardly any black people. Now, if you want to talk about uh, guns, why is it that there's a gun shop on almost every corner in this community? Why? Tell you why. For the same reason that there's a liquor store on almost every corner in the black community. Why? They want us to kill ourselves. You go out to Beverly Hills, you don't see that shit. But they want us to kill ourselves. Yeah, the best way you can destroy a people, you take away their ability to reproduce themselves. Yeah. Who is it that's dying out here on these streets every night? Y'all. Yeah. Young brothers like yourselves. What am I supposed to do? Fool roll up, try to smoke me? I'm gonna shoot the motherfucker if he don't kill me first. You're doing exactly what they want you to do. You have to think, young brother, about your future. Huh? I was thinking... Ethan, about a a role that you had in uh, 2018's Blind Spotting, where you play a police officer who guns down uh, an unarmed black man, and you have a, a very emotional scene at the end of that where uh, David Diggs uh, furiously raps at you at gunpoint, uh, you know, and and kind of expresses the messages of the movie. I was wondering if when you were doing that film, if you thought back to your experiences watching Boys in the Hood or, or if this movie informed any of the ways that you approached that character that you were playing? Because it's a difficult character to play, I'm sure. Yeah, I love that movie, first of all. If anybody listening has not seen that film, fuck, that is a fun movie. Um, mm-hmm. They did such a good job with it. Um, that character for me touches more on, like the we were talking briefly, the culture of American policing, you know, how it is inherently racist from its roots. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the idea of blind spotting is that every th- everyone has a blind spot where um, there's something we're incapable of seeing in everyone. So what's the blind spot that the guy who the white cop who kills an unarmed black man, what's the societal blind spot for him? And so what I wanted to do was touch on how the culture of policing destroys the lives of them also. I mean, it's a weird thing to think of, but as an actor, you have to, to identify with a character like that. And also in a tragic situation, like that how does it affect them it's hard to sympathize you know but as an actor you have to so that's why i made him emotional mm-hmm. that he was was part of a broken system 
You, you know, like, so how, so I'm going on a rant here, but the system doesn't seem to care how it treats the people within the system is my point. This came up uh, with the recent death of Tyree Nichols. And there were all these people sort of saying like the police officers, this, that, and the other. And like, I think the thing that's really important is like, it doesn't really matter if those police officers are black or white. It It's, it's the system of policing that's doing its job. It's working perfectly, actually. Right. It's right. doing exactly what it's supposed to. And the race of the people carrying out the system's will is kind of irrelevant at a certain point. Um, and Singleton like shows us this, but also emphasizes that there is uh, where race does come into play between a black cop and uh, a black civilian is the cop's insistence on the fact that he is not like them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it right. made me think yes. of this James Baldwin quote that was going around um, these last couple of weeks where James Baldwin basically says, like, we never call the cops. But like, if we have to, we try to make sure it's a white cop because we know that if it's a black cop, he will go out of his way to remind us how different he is from us. Um, and so, like, what you're talking about, Ethan, is, is I think, the the point that Singleton is also making, which is that, like, regardless of who executes the, the, the mission of the system, like, they are, they are simply, like, tools of that system. The, the system itself is the thing that is um that is the oppressive force and at a certain point whether it's a black police officer a white police officer or whomever like it's all policing and it's all doing the job that you know state control is supposed to do but i can't understand what the ends is like what what why what's the end goal i don't get that's the part i don't get well furious kind of has an answer for us in the film, there's a there's that scene when he's standing in front of the billboard in Compton mm-hmm. that's like soul yeah, soul to soul. soul. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And he says Which also to highlighted me. the the Los Angeles Asian and black conflict yeah. that came to a yes. head during the riots. Anyway, mm-hmm. he said something. Go ahead, I interrupt. No, well, I mean, he does kind of talk about that too. He like says, like, we you know, we need to keep this neighborhood black owned black run the way that like the Koreans have done the way that like the Jewish people have done. But he says at a certain point to uh, Trey and to Ricky, like if we're like out here killing ourselves, like we don't ever have to think about like who's actually doing the killing. Like he basically says like, the reason things are the way that they are is because like it behooves the people in power to keep us killing each other. And that's the part I don't understand why, you know, I don't understand what, why it has to be that way is I guess what I'm saying. Um, I don't see what it's accomplishing. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the thing that Singleton does really well in the film is point out, you know, all of these different things are, 
yes, vestiges of white supremacy, but also the greater kind of project of capitalism. And capitalism necessitates an underclass, right? It needs somebody to be lower on the pecking order than someone else. And the way that like wealth and power are concentrated, it has always been along class lines, yes, but racial lines specifically as well, um, you know, since, since the foundation of this country. And so all of these different systems have just calcified around all of these habits that are easy to stoke. And as long as, you know, there can be this atomization and, and breaking apart of any sort of notion of class solidarity across those racial lines, across, you know, geographical lines or, or whatever it is, and they can stoke fear and they can get people, you know, to, to have this sort of animus toward one another, uh, there's no there's no concern, there's no threat to that concentration of power at the top in terms of capital, in terms of, right. in terms of the wealth and all of those sorts of things. And, and Singleton, you know, he, he talks about it with policing, which we spent a, a quite a bit of time on. The gentrification scene is, is very important as well. Uh, but we see it in, in other ways too. I mean, throughout the film, even from the, the beginning, we see education and schooling as another vestige of that, that, you know, at the very beginning, you see this white teacher in this urban center teaching, and she's telling this sort of uh, highly narrativized, yeah. you know, kind of sparkles and rainbows yeah. version of the, the Thanksgiving story. The lie of Thanksgiving we right. were all taught. It's the lie of Thanksgiving and of like the imperial kind of order over these photographs, these these children's drawings of like, police standoffs with people in the community and, you know, helicopters with their, uh, with their spotlights down on the ground. And we see from the, from the get go, there's this sort of like indoctrinating factor where there are these people educated in this lie and this myth of the American sort of impetus. I love when she catches herself when she says Indians. Yes. <laughs> so great. Like you're still tearing, telling the story, honey. Yes, yeah. doesn't still matter what you're still even, if, even if you call it something different. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's that part at the beginning. You know, she she has a very like uh, as you were talking about Ethan, that kind of like middle ground, almost sort of like subconsciously racist conversation with Angela Bassett at the beginning, where she's on the yeah, phone and yeah, she's like, yeah, yeah. "Oh, like do do you have a job? Is there a problem in right. the home? Like, oh, or, the so way she says her father, his yes. father, like he's around, yeah." Mm -hmm. Yeah, like all of these sort of like, you know, uh, suppositions about their their existence and, and the home order and things like that. Uh, but you see it in, in the high school realm, too, when Cuba and Morris Chestnut are taking the SAT, you know, and then they go and see Furious and he asks them, how did it go? How do you think you did? They're like, I think we did Only fine. math is the equalizer. Only yes. math. Yeah. Math is the universal point uh, and, and everything else has a cultural bias. And this is okay. So you talking about these things, this is why I feel like it's okay for three white people to talk about boys in the hood, because if we don't acknowledge and learn and take into account that these things exist, if we don't take these lessons and, and be honest that they're valid, like it's just going to keep fucking going, you know? And I'm not under any impression that, like, by me learning these things, it's going to fucking change anything. But I, I know how long it's taken me to realize this stuff, you know, 
yeah. the all of those other underlying things don't pop up unless I've become familiar with them like I have in the last five to six years. Yeah. And you're, what you're describing is like, you have to actively fight against all of the ways society skews those things from our, from our visibility. Like it is, you know, I think even people like who think like the New York times is like, liberal media or whatever finger quotes time still has an agenda like it is still there to like stoke certain fears and to like reinforce certain narratives the washington post is owned by jeff bezos like they're not gonna they're not going to write anything that is going to upend the structures of power that already exist and so you really do have to go and like seek these things out and have a curiosity and be willing to like be uncomfortable and have uncomfortable conversations. And you have to recognize that there are forces marshaled against you everywhere you go that are trying to guide you in a different direction. And I think the response to this film is evidence of that. It was a huge success at the box office, as you said, and people were unwilling to let that be the story and instead had to turn it into this movie is stoking violence and reinforcing that, uh, you know, if 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 we let black people watch violent things on TV, they will go do violence instead of what the film is actually telling you, which is the exact opposite. It's like these things are actually uh, enforced by things that are beyond these people's control and the environment that they live in is by design. It is not by their choosing. I think even in the last 30 years, the last three years in particular, like it's been really disappointing to see the way the conversations that 2020 incited have been sort of smoothed over um, and kind of defanged back. They have to, to be. S- they, they have, have to. to be. And it's not, I mean, like you have to be the one that decides to, go seek those things out. Like you have to be the person that, that does that. And it works on all of these topics as well. You know, touching back on the early nineties, um, when gay rights started becoming mainstream, you know, and, and thinking about the way that I used to think that out of my conservative upbringing and then like trans rights today, you know, yeah, you have to want to understand what someone else's experience is to be able to form an opinion. You can't form your opinion listening to other people that aren't of that experience because you're going to just learn what their opinion is. You have to seek out, listen to people that are actually experiencing it to know that if a child is saying they're trans, they have to, you have to let them be what they want to be. Otherwise, they're, you know, the, the existence that they're living, the, just the suicide rates alone. Like, I couldn't imagine mm-hmm. having a child hating their existence with such an easy fix. I will never know what that experience is. I will never. There's so many experiences that I will never understand. So all I can do is listen and take their fucking word for it. So, t- like, connecting it to Boys in the Hood, I'll never know what it's like 
to grow up as a black man. All I can do is listen to their existence and take their word for it. And I think Boys in the Hood does such a good job of explaining what that existence is. In all of its facets, too. You know, it doesn't try to, like, paint it with this, you know, kind of broad strokes of everyone, you know, it's not a totalizing sort of summation of everyone is a Trey or everyone is a Ricky or everyone is a Doughboy. We get all of those characters for that reason. And, uh, I mean, we keep coming back to it. I, I want to talk a little bit about the actual characters and and what they're rooted in. First and foremost, I, I think, you know, sidestepping maybe the, the main protagonist of the film in favor of another character, but Ice Cube is so goddamn good in He's this movie. He's the so best performance in the film. He's fantastic. That, and like, that last you know, scene between the two of them. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things, you know, where there is such an emphasis on like the potential and this sort of like meritocratic, like very 90s kind of concept of like, uh, what what you can learn and and what you're capable of and and you know Ricky embodies like athleticism and physical prowess and the opportunity that that presents for young black men. Not the smartest kid in the world. No, totally not the smartest kid. But he you know he did well enough in his. Uh, SAT he did. To, to get we never got the USA. score right. Did we? Did they give us the score or we it's just got the small. letter? It's very small. We get like the score. He gets I think a seven ten. He gets he got just points above. Over. He got the seven. Yeah. Got the seven. Yep. But with Cube, there's a you know something else going on where Doughboy, as we've already talked about, you know, has this this parental figure in his life constantly telling him, "This is what you are. This is what you're going to amount to. You know, you're not your brother. You're not you're not the the person who I'm going to bet on in all of this because you are this environment and you are a product of it." But at the end, he shows such a wisdom. That's like a learned wisdom from his experience at the end. Like that, that monologue is so perfect. And and the entire movie, you know, there's like the thing with with Ricky and Trey after they have that gentrification conversation with Lawrence Fishburne, where Ricky's like, Man, I, I wish my brother had heard that. He could have really benefited from that. And then at the end, he just knocks the wind out of you, expressing in such like a poetic and perfect, you know, little little moment there all the lessons he's learned. Doughboy is like, I would argue that Doughboy is espousing that kind of wisdom throughout the course of the film. Mm -hmm. He is a character that I think is meant to um, trick us into thinking that he's something that he's not. And Ice Cube plays him brilliantly because he doesn't ever let us believe that. Um, He's been to prison he talks about it explicitly. So it's easy to like think that audiences might assume that he is a certain type of person. And he never gives us an opportunity to have that affirmed. He is, he is vulnerable when he plays that character, even when he's like popping off and like cracking jokes. And I just couldn't get over how, how taken I was by every single line delivery out of his mouth. Like he's just, he's magnetic. Absolutely couldn't take my eyes off of him. And he is like walking this very fine line of letting us see how messy this character is. He only refers to women as hoes and bitches, but he's also this person who like knows that like you can't like, 
expect a, a man to do anything other than like flex and pretend that he's gonna, you know, fight because that's all they do. Like he's, he's a person who is, um, fully fleshed out and full of complications, which is what I think so many characters in movies today are missing. Like people like characters to fit in neat and nice little boxes and be like, he's the bad guy. He's the good guy. Okay. Done. Oh, we have a gay person in this movie. Check. Like, and this movie is like not letting us do any of that. It is like fully realizing these people as like real human beings who are complicated and full of contradictions. Even Dookie, who's a literal cartoon character. Sucking yeah. on a pacifier yeah. the he entire pacifier. movie. Yeah. He has that moment in the back of of uh Doughboy's car when he's talking about God. Like yeah. the the film is insistent on us not letting ourselves believe stereotypes and reminding us that like as you say like these are humans that are well-rounded and have all of these different facets to them. And I think Ice Cube just like nails it. And it's to me, it there's a, like the system created him, you know, mm-hmm. like who he, he was this uh, defender and uh, sweet, um, a little rough around the edges, but then he goes and he spends seven years in, the prison system that's of course you know it did its job um yep. success but it wasn't able to strip away his humanity and his insight and his desires and yeah um i think the you know you're you're talking about the character development of this movie and really not that much happens there's not that much of a big plot mm-hmm. you know um, they're not working toward something. They're just existing. So the, the story is how they all work together, really. Yep. You know, it's a beautiful film. It really, really is. And what I love about what Singleton's doing here, too, is that, you know, he's he's addressing all these kind of like canards that I would I feel like reactionaries or like more conservative leaning people or, or racist use as like challenges against this this very well-founded narrative about black identity in america that's been told to us over and over again uh you know like one of the ones that i hear all the time from you know the 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 right is this idea about how police violence isn't really that big a deal because the biggest black uh, on black violence is black on black violence exactly and this movie just addresses it right away in the yep. opening script is just like one in 21 uh, black men will, will die at the hands of a gun. And it's mostly, you know, one young black man to another killing each other. And yep. it addresses it head on and explains exactly why that's the case. And, and it does it with so many of those kinds of, you know, just like leanings of, Oh, this is the way things are. And even with like the kind of like meritocratic idea of the nineties, you know, we see so many of these movies in, in the 1990s that lean into that kind of, uh, post-war posterity and talk about this idea that, you know, there is this American ideal, there's this American dream, this bootstrapism that you can get educated and you can get a good job and you can learn technology and you will ascend and you will rise above your ranks and and find a place in a new class of people with more money and and 
greater posterity. And this movie addresses that and says, yeah, you can believe that. And that is an avenue to success for young black men. But even that is not guaranteed that that is still a coin flip, you know, in the case of someone like like Ricky and and with Trey, who is always right there on the cusp, on the precipice of, you know, making a, a decision that could impact his life or being just in in the windfall of that kind of thing. I think the end of the movie for me solidifies that Singleton is saying the system demands you comply or you die. But not only is it not guaranteed that you live if you're a black man, but it's also completely arbitrary. Like Mm -hmm. I left those final scenes feeling like Doughboy has a certain fatalism. He kind of knows what's coming his way, but also Ricky followed all the rules and he still didn't make it out. And so I think like the, the the most important point that Singleton makes is like we're told that like if we just work hard and play by the rules and uh you know um do all the nice things that we're supposed to do that like that's the ticket out of here and that is not true not for black men in America and i also like love the way that Singleton plays with assumptions in all these like fake out moments that he has. Like I'm thinking specifically of the one when monster who's the guy that wears like the beanie and he ends up shooting the, the three guys that shoot Ricky, he's like holding a gun and we see him like about to pull the trigger and then it's a video game. It's duck hunt. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Duck yeah. Hunt. <laughs> and then there's like another moment when they're all standing on the porch mm-hmm. and there's a car that's rolling up slowly. And, and it's like the college it's, guy. It's the college yeah. Guy. yeah, it's the, it's the scout. And I love yeah. that he's like playing with like the assumptions of what an audience might be thinking, but he's also reminding us that everything in these boys' world is like potentially fatal. Yo, cuz. I I know why you got the car last night. Shouldn't have been there in the first place. You don't want that shit to come back to haunt you. Turned on the TV this morning. Had this shit on about. About living in a violent, a violent world. Showed all these foreign places. Foreigners living on. I started thinking, man. Either they don't know, don't show, or don't care about what's going on in the hood. All this foreign shit. They ain't have shit on my brother, man. You know, one of the things 
that's still to me feels very 90s about the film is that there is sort of this uh, positive story for for Trey, for Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character, mm-hmm. but it requires him to leave the community. To leave, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, you and know- And his mother f- required his mom to leave. Absolutely, you know? yeah. And we see her occupying predominantly wealthy and white spaces, right? She's mm-hmm. wearing like the- the like business suits and she yep. goes to like the, the very fancy, you know, restaurants with She's got the, a high rise apartment. You can see the city off behind yep. her on the yep. phone. Absolutely. So there's this, you know, there's this conversation going on within the film that I, I don't know that it has an answer for about how do you build back and give back to a community that's like broken. South Central that's broken and and do it with you know people who have found their way out and coming back and building that space you know furious seems to be a character who uh you know is kind of like that that rock that very steadfast character who's like i'm here in the community i'm working to keep it black owned with black wealth but we see that trey's ambitions are just to get out of there and and it the movie kind of posits that as to his benefit. Like, yeah, you, you got out of the hood and now you're going to hopefully succeed on your own terms away from the danger of that place. I mean, the solution is that those markets have to be regulated, right? Like there's always going to be people coming in and taking advantage of property prices being down or someone getting driven out and, and, uh, and, flipping it to turn a profit and then make the community something else. That's where like the character of furious is an interesting one because he's principled and you have to admire him for that. But then I couldn't help but feel like it's one guy and like he's, he's doing the best that he can, but the thing that he's standing up against is like systemic Mm -hmm. and like, beyond his control past a certain point. And we see that, as you said, in the fact that both his son and his ex-wife leave. Yeah, They don't do the thing that he's doing. I mean, he doesn't really have control over that at the end of the day. Well, and he even says as much too, you know, he's made his existence and the benefit of his community a very individuated thing. When Ricky gets shot, and Trey goes back to the it house. It has to be for survival. Yep. He he loads the gun and he's about to leave. And Furious says, I know your your friend got hurt and I'm sorry about that. And I know you're hurting, but that's not your problem. That's yeah. their problem. You, this is your problem here right now. You're my problem. And I'm going to take care of you and make sure that you do the right thing here. And does he does he threaten he tells him to shoot him too, mm-hmm. right? So he's like also again in the most drastic sense, humanizing the people that killed his friend. So if you want to kill someone, kill me because they're just as much of a human as I am. Yep. So choose me instead. Yes. Yeah, he recognizes. If you can't that kill system. me, you can't kill him. Yeah. He recognizes that system. In and out, even at the the beginning, when he, you know, aims and misses the uh, the, the the burglar, the guy breaking into the, his house, young Trey tells him, you know, I, I wish you had had gotten him. I yeah, wish you had killed don't him. Don't say that. Yeah. And he says, yeah. "Don't say that." You know, I would have just been contributing to the the murder of another brother in the neighborhood. Like, I don't I don't want to do that. You know, he's right. he's as much yep. a victim of circumstance in this and and in this kind of 
play that we're doing here. He's he's his own victim in a way of this of the societal occurrences here. It's all capitalism, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's all it is. It is. 100%. It is. We we like, talk about it often on this show. It is all capitalism. It's always the answer. All of my stress is capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. And like there's so much work being done to make you think that it's other bullshit and it's not. Right. 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 <laughs> it's really not. Yeah. And I guess that's when I was earlier, like, why? What's the point? I guess that is the point. Mm-hmm. You know? Point. Yeah. There is that persistence of artificial precarity yes. that comes up. And it's the thing that animates all of the existences of the people in Boys in the Hood. You know, like for them, it is real. For them, there is a material insecurity. There is uh, a, a bodily insecurity. There are all of these forces working against them to make them either compliant in this system, you know, at a compulsory level or to die. And, and so, you know, when, when you can keep a community, when you can keep a populace in that state of just feeling this tension and this anxiety around that precarity, there's no way to start thinking of alternatives to it, right? The system becomes so indentured. You you don't have anything left over, right? Nope. And I think yeah. that's what the movie does so well is express that, that it's like there isn't, there aren't a lot of avenues and pathways to success for young black men in America. And the system works that way on purpose. I read that um, that MTV banned the Straight Outta Compton music video, <laughs> um, like in 89 or whenever it came out. And they put out this statement at the time and they were talking about all of like the violence in the music video directed by Rupert Wainwright, by the way, which I did not know. Okay. Rad. Um, and so MTV puts out this like feckless, whatever statement about like, you know, the violence in straight out of Compton and the music video and how like, it's not something they want to support. They don't want to support showing violence against police officers and all these things. And, um, you know, all these like narratives that we've been talking about for the last hour or so. And then I read that the FBI sent NWA a letter mm-hmm. and they were basically like, you know, more or less saying like, we've uh, recognized that you are, you represent a very material threat to uh, national safety, <laughs> to yeah. national safety, all this insane shit. And it just, made me think about how this film and others like it that are doing so much to counter the narratives that all of these other structures of power are enforcing and are still just being met with the same, the same sort of dismissal. And in often cases um, very actively being manipulated and suppressed by structures of power like the FBI or American media. And uh, like I thought about sort of the implications of what MTV, who, you know, is this network that was supposed to be championing like alternate voices especially in their early days and capitalizing off of hip hop culture. Oh, well, a hundred percent, but like that they were, you know, really there to do a project that was finger quotes, anti-establishment and that 
ultimately like that gets that even gets turned back right. into yeah. you know serving the the larger narrative of like these people are problems the things that they're talking about are are uh, represent a real threat to american safety and not that the police officers that are doing the shooting are you know any kind of threat you have to actively teach yourself an alternative you know um and how do you how do you get more to be open to that learning process i don't know and it's also like what you're describing ethan is something we end up talking about a lot on this show as it relates to movies but it also relates to what we're talking about which is like a willingness to be uncomfortable. And I think so right. many Americans are trained to believe that they never have to be uncomfortable ever. Good like, point. oh, I get to order exactly what I want at the exact right time. And it has to be these kinds of fries right. and this burger and like everything right. I want, I get. And like your ability to understand and see things that you may not have seen before is a curiosity that you have and an, a willingness on your part to be uncomfortable. Right. And that is like in short supply. I feel like that is a thing that I don't see getting encouraged just societally. Like, which is another societal all. culture. It's that American yes. exceptionalism. Like we're oh, great. Yeah. We're perfect. Yeah. We don't need, we're perfect. Right. I don't need to learn anything. I'm right. good. And I don't ever have to feel bad. Yeah. And you think about it in terms of, this film, you know, we haven't even mentioned that this was an Academy Award yeah. nominated feature. It was yep. uh, nominated for Best Screenplay and uh, Singleton best for Best Director as well. Mm -hmm. John Singleton became uh, the first black American to ever be nominated for that particular really? award. And the youngest person still to this day nominated for that award at 23 years old. Um, so just like, you know, so many barriers being broken all at once there and the recognition of this film as an important work. I think about the landscape of media today. And of course, you know, the, the concentration of things to a couple of very major studios and everything else moving to kind of a streaming kind of content stream and so many competing avenues for your eyes and for your brain and the way that has kind of like dulled and sanded down the edges of art in certain ways that it, it can't really be confrontational anymore as much. I, th I think that there's a lot of smoothing over to the point where it's more easily received so that people don't turn it off or don't skip it or don't move to something else. And so you think about a movie like boys in the hood, even, you know, getting to studio heads like an Amy Pascal in 2023. Right. And you wonder if there's purchase there. I know there's a market for it because there have been, Lots of strides with uh, black artists and you know their their films and and stories and and the expression of of just black existence and identity in America. But you wonder if something this confrontational and this nuanced, especially about its depiction of crime and you know these young black men who do have these nuances and textures, you wonder like if there would have been like an allergy to it now from those kind of suits, those white suits who were like, I, I don't know about this. Well, now it seems like the things that do touch, um, like, uh, 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 peel, you know, um, mm -hmm. he like would get out. 
you know, he touches on these themes, you know, but there's an element of fun for today's audience, you know, and even us, which is a little bit more abrasive of a film, even that has some fun elements so that it can be publicly digested. Um, But I do think that they do exist, just not at the studios. I think we're in a weird place with the mass studio world. Um, This was from an era in American film where the medium budget film was the most common project. Yep. Bunches and bunches and bunches of, you know, 10 to $20 million movies uh, instead of seven massive $200 million, $1 billion epic things, you know, that happen every year. So I, I do think the industry is, is very different today. Um, but with the streaming platforms and how many different avenues there are now, I do think that that has opened up more in the independent realm, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. Now I'm not going to be able to name a great example because my brain is fried today. Um, <laughs> We're all in that boat. I I do think the edge exists just not in the mainstream sense like yeah. it did for Boys in the Hood. Um, you have to search it out. Everything, like you said, is a little more polished. A little, the, the edges have been routed to a nice, smooth, non-abrasive surface. I'm thinking even of The Five Bloods, which is made by one of the most famous directors in the world, Spike Lee. And like that got zero attention from the establishment and like recognition Mm -hmm. for what it was doing because it is a very confrontational, abrasive film. It's a complicated movie. You've got Delroy Lindo in a Make America Great hat in that movie, right? Like Spike is dealing with very complicated feelings in in the black community. Yeah, it's not an easily digestible film, so it's not going to get nominated for an Oscar. I think the abrasion in my industry right now probably exists more in one-hour television than it does Mm -hmm. in features. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which is why I actually watch a lot more one-hour TV than I do films these days um it seems like all of the writers that want to tell those stories are writing for tv so they have these like why tell a two-hour character-driven story when you can tell a 200-hour character-driven story (laughs) yeah um and back to capitalism it pays better (laughs) yeah for sure absolutely of course and like i guess to your point too ethan like it allows for like the nuance that we're missing that used to be in these movies. Yep. You know, a lot of these mid budget movies, like serialized television allows you to sort of like get into those things a little bit more easily than I think the, the, the film industry is allowing for currently. Yes. Totally currently. agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. yep. Totally agree. Which is a point we always come back to on our show when we cover things from the 1990s that there was just this this openness to it you know it felt like a a very unique time maybe the last time in 
Hollywood where you got this abundance of mid-budget projects and a surplus of unique creative voices telling weird and interesting stories. And uh, yeah, it's why we love this decade and why we like talking about movies like Boys in the Hood. It was a really good cinema decade. I mean, it really was, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, It was pretty damn strong for features specifically. I would say maybe up there with the the last five years of the 70s and uh, the early 80s, like when uh, like uh, 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 drugstore, uh, yeah, uh, Midnight Cowboy, even Drugstore yep. Cowboy. Is Drugstore Cowboy 80s or is that 90s? I think that's 80s. Is that yeah, 80s, late 80s, so. you know? You're still talking about that period of like 70s to 80s, you know, sort of like all those thrillers and like where things were feeling like more paranoid and those stories were weirder. Uh Uh-huh. And then once it came into the nineties, it seemed like they popularized them. Like they got a little more money. Mm -hmm. So they got a little more polished and then got a little bigger, but they still had the vibe that those films did from the eighties and the, and the late seventies, the nineties were good. Oh, yeah. They were. I was just reminiscing the other day. Okay, I'm going to allow myself one drip of nostalgia. I was reminiscing the other day about the show All That and how, like, we had all of these incredible musical performances just, like, on TV for us. Like, Nas, Erica Badu, Alia, TLC. And I was, like, 10 just like watching cable television children's entertainment watching this on on nickelodeon like that's like what even was that like we had it so good we really did and we didn't even know it and i think with that uh we have come to the end we've exhausted all of our thoughts on john singleton's boys in the hood uh ethan embry thank you so very much again for uh joining us on the hit factory it's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. I've really enjoyed talking to you and, and listening and trying to understand how I see things. And, you know, it's great. It's really good. We so enjoyed the conversation. And I'm so glad you picked this movie, Ethan. Such a good movie. It's such, such a good so movie. fucking good. Yeah. I mean, you Go- said cultural impact of the 90s. I was like, oh, yeah. Fucking Boys in the Hood. <laughs> gotta be boys in the hood watch it if you haven't if you haven't watched it recently rewatch run don't walk uh but ethan embry uh where can people find you around the internet if they wanted to uh keep up with you uh i i do currently live on twitter i am a twitter addict yeah um i mean it's brilliant man like you can talk to anybody in the world (laughs) and for now like for now yes currently um, it may be broken. I haven't looked at it in two hours, so that may be <laughs> out of date. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm there on the, the twats. Um, uh, and then I don't do anything else really. That's it. I mean, cause I do. like that. Huh? You do, you do a lot of other uh, stuff. In, <laughs> not in the, I do only in the digital realm. That's the only digital realm yeah. that I currently visit with regularity. Um, do you have any uh, Do you have any projects cooking that you can tell uh, us about, or that you are allowed to speak on? 
we uh the wife and i finally got to work together but we didn't actually get to do a scene together and there's a dc show um on the cw uh gotham knights that'll start in march um so if if the new dc universe allows that to keep living um there'll be more playing on that but we came in and played a little bit which was fun um i really liked the wig I think I'm a wig guy now. Like I'm a firm believer of the wig. Oh my god! <laughs> yes. You know, You've been like just wearing weaves now. Yeah, man. <laughs> so many dudes in my business, they like go spend all this money on a hair transplant. And I'm like, that's just one look. Get a wig. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a million looks, dude. You know. Oh my god! I love that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I would love it if like behind you, there's just like 17 heads of like. <laughs> just your wig palace. Ethan Embry's wig palace. Ethan wig Embry's Emporium. Wig palace. Yeah. Oh we'll, be, we'll be looking out for you in uh, many a decadent hairpiece uh, forthcoming, <laughs> Ethan. From our end of things, you can uh, follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. You can also subscribe to the show on patreon.com slash hitfactorypod for bi-weekly bonus episodes and a lot of other cool content there. We're going to give a shout out to our overlords. Their names are Linda, Jesse K, and Jared Murray. Thank you all so much for your support. We love you. And we will catch you all the next time. See ya. Hello, my name is Elaine. And I'll be your tour guide through South Central Los Angeles. How to survive in South Central? A place where busting the gap is fundamental. No, you can't find the shit in a handbook. Take a close look at a rap crook. Rule number one, get yourself a gun. A nine in your ass will be fine. Keep it in your glove compartment, cause jackers, oh, they love to start shit. Now if you're white, you can trust the police. But if you're black, they ain't nothing but beef. Watch out for the kill. Don't make a false move and keep your hands on the steering wheel. And don't get smart. Answer all questions. And that's your first lesson on staying alive in South Central Dead. That's how you survive. Hi, this is Amanda Kim. Are you enjoying your stay in South Central Los Angeles? Or is somebody taking your thing? Have you witnessed the drive-by? Make sure you have your camcorder ready to witness the extracurricular activities on Blacks by the Lake. Rule number two, don't trust nobody, especially a bitch with a hooker's spot. Cause it ain't nothing but a trap, and females will get your jack to kidnap. you wind up dead. Just to be safe, don't wear no blue red. Cause most niggas get got in either LA, Compton, or Watt. Pissed off black human beings. So I think you better skip the sightseeing. And if you're nothing but a mark, make sure that you're in before dark. But if you need some affection, mate. Make sure the bitch ain't a section eight, cause if so, that's a monkey wrench hoe. And you won't survive in South Central. Now you realize it's not always cracked up to be. You realize that it's fucked up. It ain't nothing like the shit you saw on TV. Palm trees and palm bitches. So advise you to pack your shit and get the fuck on. Hey, yo, Q, this motherfucker don't know what time it is. So show this motherfucker.